Right. I'm Michael Foster. And I'm Norm Tennant, and you're listening to It's Good to Be Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Michael, what are we talking about tonight? My wife and I had a really delightful conversation with a couple that was visiting from out of town. They came to church. They are getting ready or had just graduated from New St. Andrews, and they're going to be getting married in just a couple of weeks. And they said, hey, what's some marriage advice? What's some newlywed advice? And I thought that'd be a great episode for us to do. So we sketched out some ideas. So, Ethan and Emma, this episode's for you. May God bless your marriage. You recently had a couple reach out to you, newlyweds, and they were asking for advice on you know anything that would improve their marriage life as newly married people. and you and I both like to keep things very practical. There's obviously a time for the theoretical underpinnings and you have to go into those and get quite theoretical sometimes. But for people who've just gotten married, probably what they really need is some simple practical tips, not some great big framework that they have to internalize. And you gave them five very good tips, which I think would be great to talk about because we probably have quite a few people in our audience who either are newly married or who maybe have been married for a while, but have not been doing a lot of these things. And these are tips that can help any married couple uh, at any point to improve their, their marriage if they're not currently doing them. Yeah, that's exactly right. These are just little practical tips that are often overlooked, but will make a big difference over time and especially in that first year of marriage. So I'm assuming that you have a decent church, a devotional life, a budget. These are just six actionable pieces of advice for those who are starting out. So the first is lower your sexual expectations to remove performance anxiety. This is important for the entire first year, but it's especially important for the wedding night and the entire honeymoon. And I picked this up from Dr. Ed Wheat in his book, Intended for Pleasure. It's a good book and it's worth having, especially for a pastor that does marriage counseling. Chapters one through five are the ones that I, I actually reference the most. I, chapter one's all right. There's better books for the theological side of marriage, but chapters two through five, as I recall, are on the sort of practical mechanical side of sex. And I've thought it was helpful and it's been helpful for a lot of couples that I've shared it with. One thing he talks about early in the book is all the anxiety around the wedding night and the honeymoon and how to mitigate that and how you should just take your time, slow down, enjoy each other's bodies, fall in in love with each other's bodies, explore each other's bodies, and just bring down the expectation and the anxiety level by doing that. What a lot of young couples don't realize is that all their early sex, the sex in the first months or first years, is actually some of the most awkward sex that they'll ever have. And it's actually not as good as sex is going to get if they invest time into learning what pleases each other, what what each spouse likes and enjoys. And that's that's good. It's good in this way is that uh, the worst sex you're going to have in your marriage uh, you're not going to know it's the worst sex because if you've been ch- chased and you've held off until you got married, like you're still excited about it, but it gets better and it gets even better if you remove the anxiety. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of couples when they get married, they have this 
I don't think anyone's told them this directly, but there's this kind of implicit understanding that you're supposed to go and the first night of the honeymoon is supposed to be this incredible sexual romp and everything, the stars all align. And I think Hollywood has a lot to answer for here, of course, as well. But the truth is that the more you have that expectation, the more difficult it's actually going to be. And the last thing that you want on your wedding night is some kind of performance anxiety. And if you do take off that pressure and you explicitly discuss with each other, look, we're going to take it slow and let's not try to do more than we're comfortable with. Uh, We've got, you know, honeymoon is usually at least a week. We've got at least a week to figure this out. (laughs) You should be able to get a fair amount figured out in a week. And that will establish a good baseline for, um, for creating a, a sex life in the future, which is actually not, founded in a kind of awkward anxious experience you want something that starts off in a tender and uh thoughtful and just generally non-pressurized kind of experience you don't want to be going crazy and nothing kills a woman's sex drive and arousal quite like anxiety if you've read a lot of red pill literature Twitter feeds, YouTube, whatever, uh, you'll hear the language of getting a woman's sexual best. And you definitely want to get your wife's sexual best, but you also have to understand that that is relative. Not everything is going to be a 10 on the Richter scale. Actually, there's quite a bit of variance. And a good analogy is to think of it like food. Sometimes it's like just having a snack, and sometimes it's a five-course meal. But the intensity, the length uh, of sex uh, will vary based on what's going on in your life and what you're working through in the night. And and sometimes a snack hits the spot. And if you think of it in terms of food is actually quite helpful because when you start out cooking, you can't cook a very good meal. And most of the time you don't even know what kinds of things you particularly enjoy making and eating. So if you were to go into your honeymoon and your honeymoon was focused around for some reason cooking instead of sex, and you had this expectation in advance that you were going to, on the first night, prepare a five-course meal that was the absolute bee's knees and could never be improved upon, and you'd never cooked before, you would have a, a somewhat disappointing experience. Whereas if you go into it thinking, well, we're going to experiment and, and see what we like and try out a few different foods and a, diff- a few different ways of making them, um, then you've, you've got a much more realistic expectation and something that will serve as a foundation to build on. Yeah, it's a really helpful way to put it. So my second one is learn to speak woman. It's funny, guys uh, will talk about how women speak, communicate in a different way, and then expect women to talk like men, right? You, you married her because she's not a man, because you want her femininity, because you want a good opposite in your home. And you don't want her to become more manly. You want to learn how to understand her. So you want to cast aside those androgynous assumptions and learn to speak woman. It might be helpful if you could give an example of what this means in terms of some actual difference that you've noticed in your own life between how you communicate and how your wife communicates. Is there an example you can give of a particular way that you find you have to communicate that's different than you would with a man? Sure. One of the best examples I know of comes from a Owen Benjamin stand-up bit that he does on how his wife won't ever talk to him directly. 
And she'll say things like, man, it's sure cold in here. So that's her way of saying, change the thermostat or go grab me a blanket. And whereas uh, Owen would just say, hey, could you hand me that blanket or let's turn the heat up, you know, but his wife's going to be much more indirect and she's going to make an observation, which is he's supposed to understand what it implies. And so men are supposed to just kind of get it. And men have a, a habit of, in general speaking, more directly. So when there's a story, they want to know the punchline. Where's this story going? What's the point of the story? And sometimes with a lot of ladies, they just are going to share what happened. Their communication kind of moves in a circle and not in a line. And that's because it's uh, contextual. They're trying to draw the picture and pull you into the experience because women are very much focused on nurturing relationships and knitting people together where men have a tendency to be more focused on mission objectives, how to get something done. And that requires very clear and concise communication. It's interesting that you use that example of it's cold in here because one of the things that I find myself doing with my boys all the time um, less as they get older, thankfully, but when they're quite young, the a huge problem that I have with them is whenever there's some kind of an issue, they'll come to me and they'll complain about the issue. And I drill it into their heads. I don't want you to come to me with a problem. I want you to come to me and ask for a solution. So whatever it is that you want, come and ask me for that. If you don't know what you want, tell me what the problem is and then ask for me to help you. I don't want to hear just whining. And I'm not saying that women are naturally whiners, but that kind of um, covert way of asking for something does seem to be a thing you have to drill out of boys. That actually brings a good example to mind that also teases out another aspect of this. I can recall my wife talking to me about this bad experience she had at a grocery shop. And she didn't like the cashiers and the parking spaces, the way they were set up and the carts and all these things were problems. And as she's talking to me, I'm thinking through my head, well, don't go to that grocery store. Go to another grocery store. You know, I'm thinking through solutions or let's call and complain and talk to them and have them change it. But slowly I realized that it really, she wasn't looking for a solution. My wife's not an idiot. She knows she could go to a different grocery store and she knows she could call the manager. What she's doing is she's sharing her day with me. She wants me to experience what she experienced. So much so that she sometimes will project, you know, draw me into kind of her anger and frustration. So I start feeling these emotions that I don't want to feel. And that's the power and blessing of women is that women uh, have this ability to uh, nurture relationships and create an atmosphere where people are feeling what they feel. And that, that's, that can be really good and that can be really bad. Now, I know we're going to have some people that are going to say, well, my wife's not like that at all. My wife's very matter of fact and clear and concise. But the reality is that people do exist on a spectrum. And we're talking about female and male tendencies here. We're not saying that this is this like hardcore black and white. There's uh, brackish water, so to speak, that water in between fresh and salt. Nonetheless, if you figure out the different communities 
communication strategies at work in your marriage, in particular, understanding how your wife talks. And you learn to communicate in such a way that she understands. And you also learn to interpret what she's saying rightly. It will create a great foundation in your marriage to build on. And we all know that communication is one of the biggest issues that leads to marriage problems down the road in particular. It's probably the biggest cause of divorce. Which leads into your third point as well, quite well. I know this seems really simple, but it is something that it's easy to overlook. And we'll read articles, we'll have thoughts, we'll have experiences at our different workplaces or the different commitments that we have, and we'll keep them to ourselves, and we won't share them with our wife. And you guys are building a life together, so you want to have these conversations. You want her to know what's going on with you whether it's things you're happy about, whether it's things that you're angry or sad or struggling with, um, things that you're excited about. You want her to know the things that make you intellectually turn on, the things you're interested in, whether it's sports or politics or whatever. You want to share articles with her and chat about it. And obviously you have to find commonality. You're not going to each be equally interested in the same things. But you're building that life together and having that ongoing dialogue and building a series of things that you can reference. You're also getting at-bats. You're getting opportunities to step up to the plate and understand how your wife thinks and uh, how she talks and communicates to build that relationship. And it's very important. So just share things with your wife. Share the things that you're thinking about. Yeah, and I think that it's important to not be superstitious about sharing negative things from your day because you'll get people in the manosphere, these red pill guys who say, you know, women never want to hear a man complain or express any kind of negativity or doubt or anything like that, because it's going to make him seem weak. And there is truth to that. If you go overboard, then it certainly can cause a woman a lot of anxiety. But at the same time, if you have a good wife and especially as your marriage develops, if you're not sharing anything negative with her, she's going to start thinking, what's going on? Um, obviously, you should be going to male friends to deal with a lot of the problems that you have. But if she isn't hearing anything bad, she's going to start thinking, this isn't real. Something is wrong here. He's hiding things from me. And the idea that you should never share anything negative with a woman just doesn't make sense in view of the biblical view that a woman is actually a helpmeet. How is she supposed to help you if she doesn't know that there's a problem? So the way that you frame the problem and how you share it and how you tackle it is important, but to not share anything like that at all is insane. Yeah, I agree. You don't want to get really weird about it. You should be able to open up to your wife about things. You just don't want to always be complaining to her and always being negative. Another aspect of it to consider, too, is that women tend to magnify and multiply when it comes to their husband. So they they help build up the mission that he's leading, help build up his home. They give him children. And this is also true uh, emotionally. So if a guy's coming home and he's talking about all these problems he's having, his wife's going to tend to magnify that in her head. So a good example is I can think of a couple times where I've found myself in the middle of a church dispute and these guys are kind of attacking me and coming at me uh, pretty intense. But I'm able to work through that with those guys a lot of times. You know how we can get in these really intense battles but still be friends afterwards. 
When I'm in the middle of it, though, if I share with my wife what's going on, she can kind of turn into a pit, a pit bull and want to bite these guys' heads off because she wants to protect me. And she thinks they're, you know, being nasty to me and she cares about me. And it's because we are a, a package deal. So as they attack me, they're also attacking her and our household. And so we can make a mess by sharing the wrong things with our wife and we just have to learn what's right and what's wrong and again it depends on your wife uh, your wife's temperament but every woman will get vicious and want to protect her husband and her children so you need to be really careful about that does does that make sense that's very important actually because in my experience i mean i've been involved in some protracted battles in the last year and with two different groups of people, um, I would say that in both cases, my wife was significantly more affected emotionally than I was. Um, just a great deal of outrage at what was going on compared to what I feel. Uh, that isn't to say I wasn't outraged. Um, <laughs> I was, but the the lingering effects of it are much stronger for women. And women, especially when their husband is being attacked, they have an intense reaction to that. Any kind of threat to their husband is taken in a very personal way. Um, and in a sense, you can, you, you can flip it around and see how that works. Because if a man were to physically attack your wife, for example, you would have a very intense reaction to that. You'd be willing to kill in that situation. And I think that's kind of how it is emotionally for women a lot of the time when that kind of thing happens. That's exactly right. And you just have to learn your wife's bandwidth. You got to learn how she can be a helper to you. And that means uh, you have to open up about the right things. And there's some things that maybe you process with your guy friends and not with your wife. Figuring out which is which is just going to take time. And that's why this is a, a first year thing to work towards. And that's why sharing with her will help you gauge who she is and how you guys can build a life together. So the next one is set aside a monthly time to review your goals together. Marriage isn't just about, you know, making each other happy and being a source of pleasure, but actually about building something, doing something. You're building a household together. You're leaving a legacy. You're building up the kingdom of God and giving God glory. And that means you need to have uh, goals and you need to think through your goals. A goal, my definition, is something achievable with difficulty and a real good acronym to work through goals is the SMART acronym, S-M-A-R-T. You can look it up on Wikipedia. But Emily and I, we do five-year plans and we'll do sometimes shorter, uh, you know, one-year, three-year plans, but we'll plan our life out in five-year chunks and we'll reevaluate things um, five years in. So I had a five-year plan from when we moved down to South Carolina and it came to an end and we moved here. Then we created a five-year plan, which we're now two years into for the work we're doing here. And uh, we review where we're at financially, where we're at with our kids educationally, where we're at with our health, and what we're trying to do in building uh, and buying a farmhouse on the east side of Cincinnati. And we set aside time to review that. And I think, you know, daily is too much, weekly is too much, annually is, you know, too little. Month Monthly seems about right for us. This is something that we're working on in my household at the moment. I was for a long time, very passive about this kind of thing, having goals of any kind. 
and that was not a good thing for our marriage or for uh, our house as a whole. And I would say that what you said about the timing is very true. We tried last year to do a kind of weekly executive and that was too much. And it yeah, just sounds stressful. <laughs> yeah. fell by the wayside. Exactly. Because you were like, this is too much. Whereas a uh, yearly, which we do do, um, we did one last year and this year. So we're just kind of working through that at the moment, actually. Um, the yearly is a really good time to look back and review everything and to reassess your long-term goals and set things right and you know make corrections and so on. But obviously it's fairly useless for any kind of on-the-fly course correction because by the time you get to the next year, things could have devolved completely into a pear shape. So monthly is definitely a, a better way of doing it. Um, but the ongoing conversations are important. So having it in top of mind that, you know, we're working on this thing at the moment and you're doing it every day or every few days. And so you're talking about it more regularly than you're actually meeting in a more formal way so that it is something that you can discuss on the fly and, you know, encourage each other and, and see where you're at without being too stressed about it. Exactly, man. A big part of marriage is learning how to help each other stay motivated and get things done. And talking about goals can lead to a lot of conflict and stress. So having this be part of your early marriage, and especially when you're dealing with kind of smaller goals, it's a good way to learn how to motivate and deal with conflict and deal with it in a way that's godly and good. So that's a good segue into point number five which is to do what now, Michael? Yeah, the fifth point is to build something together. So this one comes from a lot of the one-on-one -on -one marriage counseling I've done with men. And one thing that comes out in a lot of the calls I do is how little these couples do together. They, they share a house, a bed, often have kids. But as their kids age and are either away from the house a lot or have entirely moved out, the marriage really has no shared projects. It's They're almost just roommates, really. And again, marriage is about doing something. It's about building a multi-generational household. And at the center of that household is the relationship between the patriarch and the matriarch, mom and dad, the alpha, the beta. If they aren't on the same mission, everything will spin out of control and start to fall apart. But that doesn't happen overnight. It happens as the couple fails to work on things together, and consequently, they slowly drift apart until there's a huge space between the husband and the wife, and they're on totally different missions. So one way to protect from this happening is to build things together. And they can be really small things, like do a puzzle together, paint a room together, Train and run a 5K together. Maybe you guys can do the whole chicken thing, get a chicken coop, whatever. It just needs to be active and not passive and involve both of you. So streaming shows and watching TV doesn't really fit well in this category. For Emily and I, it's been running together and working a side hustle together. We sold on Amazon and eBay for several years. So we would put the kids to bed, crack open the Pinot, pack up the things to mail that we had sold to customers, listen to music, and talk about our life. And then we'd also go out sourcing together uh, at garage sales and flea markets and auctions or whatever. It was it was great. I, uh, great times, great memories. It was really fun with my wife. 
Nothing builds affinity and intimacy like working side by side. That's true of male relationships, but also male-female relationships. And a dark manifestation, a sinful manifestation of this is the fact that most affairs start in a workplace between coworkers, but you can flip that to your advantage by working side by side with your wife in a shared project. So build something together. Yeah, reading books together is a good one, I find. Um, I, I like to read books to the whole family, um, but reading just to your wife can also be really good. Um, especially if you have trouble reading scripture, like having devotional time can sometimes be difficult, especially if you've got a lot of kids. So being able to sit down and just read scripture sometimes can be helpful as well. So not something I've done recently, but actually now that it comes to mind, something I probably should do. But also um, you mentioned having time together, just watching a show. That's something that we do quite often and it's great for downtime. But as you say, it doesn't, doesn't build anything together. It's quite passive. And we have found that in the, far, in the past year, uh, since COVID lockdown, we decided that we were going to start a victory garden, as we called it, because in, in the Second World War, people would uh, develop their gardens into uh, vegetable gardens that they call victory gardens. You know, this is how we're going to win the war, not having to uh, buy food that we're going to supply for ourselves. And it's been a very good experience just having this thing to work towards. And it also gives you a a common goal that you can bring the children into so that the children can see the garden growing and they can be involved in various ways in developing it. They can go out and help pick things. You know, you can send them out. We're going to have this tonight. We need these things from the garden. You go get them. Um, it's just a, a really good way of getting started, building something that's productive that makes you feel like you're actually being fruitful and um, improves your life in a tangible way that is still really accessible because pretty much anyone can do it. It's not that hard. It, you know, one of you is probably going to take the lead on the knowledge. Um, that's my wife in, the, in my case. She's the one that kind of plans everything. And I'm the one that provides the manual labor. And that's fine. I, I'm not that interested in knowing all of the ins and outs of how to plant seeds and which seeds to plant, when, what times and that kind of thing. That I'm not worried if she knows all that and I just help her out with it. But you need someone who can drive a trailer and pull up the, the, the mulch and turn it in the, into the garden and shovel heavy things and pull out heavy roots and all those kinds of things as well. So having that to do together is something that you can build something and you can involve your kids and it gives you a good basis for figuring out where you are as a couple in terms of your kind of, I don't want to say a physical um, dominion because it's not all physical, but it gives you a sense of physical dominion over the, over your world. And it gives you an idea of, you know, how good are we at this kind of thing? What can we do after this? Could we expand this garden? How big could it get before we'd be overloaded? And knowing where your limits lie on that kind of thing just really helps to get a feel for where you are as a couple. And it helps to solidify your marriage in general in a weird kind of way. One of the early dates I took Emily on was canoeing. We went to uh, Brookville, Indiana to Whitewater canoeing out there. And it 
was pretty frustrating. She had never been canoeing before, or if she had been canoeing, it hadn't been since she was a small child. So she didn't really know what she was doing. And that was something we did a lot in Southern Indiana. I, I went on a lot of canoe trips, so I was really familiar with it. But I wasn't a very good teacher at the time, clearly, because she would paddle on the same side that I was, not at the right time, and she didn't quite understand the steering. And it started getting kind of intense, and I started like screaming at her and like, what's going on? How do you not get this? And she's like, why are you screaming at me? I just want to canoe. And we worked through it and it became a a really good memory. And it's something I'm really glad that we did together. And you realize these projects that you work on together, they can be a source of conflict, but that's, that's the whole deal. They, They first off, they're a great source of memories, but they're also a test for your relationship. That's exactly it. It's a test. It, you're establishing cooperation and, and learning to exercise dominion through progressively more difficult tasks. And if you fail, that's okay. You can go smaller. But if you start small and each time you're just pushing slightly out of your comfort zone, you can get surprisingly far in a surprisingly short amount of time. Absolutely. Get at it. So my last one is learn how to de-escalate fights. Now, when my wife and I were talking to this couple, she said, learn how to fight fair. And I actually do think that's good advice that you do need to learn uh, the way that is appropriate to deal with conflicts. And, And part of fighting fair is not bringing up sins that have been repented of, sins that you've already forgiven your wife for, and is also not uh, good or fair or godly, the threat in suicide or, or divorce or separation or that you're going to steal the kids or stuff like that that happens in really intense arguments. That stuff can't be a tool on your tool belt in your relationship. And I know some people will say that, that telling people to fight fair is not good advice. I've seen this on Twitter and they say, well, you should, a woman should just learn not to fight. <laughs> Okay, great. Yeah, we all should learn not to sin and we should all always be righteous. But here's the reality is that there's a remaining corruption in believers. There's still sin that we have to fight and overcome. And that means there's going to be conflict in relationships. And that means that husband and wife are going to fight on occasion. You, you'll probably, if you're doing well, you'll fight less and less or you'll fight better and better. In other words, you'll resolve your conflict in a better way. But what I prefer to emphasize is de-escalating fights, keeping them low, not letting them go nuclear. So a really easy way to do that is that when you feel things kind of building and, and going a bad direction, you want to emphasize, hey, we're on the same page. We have the same big picture goal. I love you. Let's work through this. Um, uh, I choose you over all other women. I, I understand you're frustrated. Let's let's get on the same page here, right? So de-escalate. Remind her how much you love her. Then also hug her. Put your hand on her shoulder. Rub her leg. Demonstrate uh, that you care for her. Demonstrate a sort of tender, gentle side of of yourself. And then also be very careful with your tone. Scripture says a gentle uh, answer turns away wrath. 
And if you're going to scream, she's probably going to scream too. Your wife and your children are going to reflect your attitude. So what attitude do you want her to have? You want to have that attitude. So you don't want to lose control. You don't want to unnecessarily raise your voice. And the other thing is maybe you're not a screamer, but a lot of guys uh, adopt this sort of lecturing tone, like a father talking down to a child. That's not good either. No one likes to be talked down to. So you, you want to talk to her as an equal, a near equal, a peer, um, and you want to uh, calm everything down and you want to be an example of how you want this conversation to go. And she might be really upset and try to pull you towards her frame of mind or her approach, you know, being upset, making crazy claims, screaming or whatever. But you as the man, as the leader, have to stay in control and not go there and in doing so, de-escalate things. Always look for ways to de-escalate fights. You're exactly right. And I think that the the key point that it's really easy to forget about in the middle of a fight is that if you're having a fight, what you're what you should be doing is you should be cooperatively testing each other's ideas and where each of you are in order to move towards some common goal. You're trying to get back onto the same page. You're not trying to further separate. You're trying to bring back together. So James talks about the way that if you have selfish ambition, you're going to be backbiting. The the point of a marriage is not selfish ambition. And one of the ways that I've found um, in my own marriage, one of the ways that a fight can be offset is by having some basic self-awareness when you yourself are just being a bit of an ass. If you're feeling grumpy and you know you made some snide comment or something like that, it's easy for the other person to let that slide and then for you to think that it's over. But if you if you really care about being one together, then it makes more sense, at least some of the time, sometimes you have to play it by ear because you don't want to stir up an old resentment. But often if you've done something that's just kind of assish and your wife or your husband has just let it go because they love you, you could come back a little while later and say, Hey, I'm sorry. I was just in a bad mood before. I'm sorry. I was an ass. And it tells them that you actually are thinking about them and the relationship and wanting to be a unified whole and not splitting up. And it, it it reminds me of the analogy of um, the bank account. You have to put money in, in order to take money out. You need, you need to be making those emotional investments in order to be able to, when a fight comes, you're going to be drawing out a lot emotionally. You need to have a lot in there emotionally. I can imagine a lot of the guys in the manosphere and the red pill who've been critical of us seeing your statement there um, as as weak in a misunderstanding of male-female relationship. And I can remember some guys some months ago telling me that a husband's not called to lead his wife and a wife's not called to follow a husband. A wife is called to submit to a husband's headship. And I thought that was a really telling comment, and it reveals how a lot of these guys think, where they think a husband doesn't have to be a skilled 
leader, where it's just a matter of commanding and she should just obey. But that's not any form of leadership. I mean, the reality is God led Israel and Israel followed God. And pastors are leaders and uh, business owners are leaders and husbands are without a doubt a leader. Leadership requires skill and wisdom. And you can think of the great example from the Old Testament with Solomon, where you have these two women that are claiming that this child is their child, and Solomon can't determine who's telling the truth. So he says, you know what, I'll cut the child in half, and you each can have half. And the, the mother says, no, no, she can have the baby, and and thereby reveals that that is the actual mother and the other woman is lying. You're seeing the wisdom of a king, the wisdom of a ruler, and you see men called to be wise throughout the book of Proverbs, which is probably the most explicitly masculine book in all the Bible. It's a book where a father is teaching a son how to be a man. So men have to learn how to lead. And a lot of these guys, they just think it's a matter of commanding. But there's all these different um, aspects to your leadership as a husband. Now, not everything can always be worked out in the way that we would like it to be worked out. And I remember I was talking to this couple uh, some years ago, not the one that we talked to the other night, but this is way back. And this wife would not listen to her husband. And they got to a four-way intersection. It was a red light. And she got out of the vehicle and was protesting. You know, they were fighting. And she she got out of the vehicle to make a point. And the light turned green and everyone's honking their horn. And, uh, and I asked uh, Emily, I said, Emily, tell him what I would have done if you did that. And my wife said, you would have drove off. And I absolutely would have driven off. I would have been like, hey, get back in the car. I love you. Let's not do this. Get back in the car. And if she would have screamed and kept throwing a fit and making a scene, I'd be like, all right, well, um, you have your cell phone. You got my number. Love you. Not, not going to stay here in the middle of this intersection. I would have driven off. There's a time to make a stand. There's a time to stay up to three in the morning arguing it out. But you always want to look for ways to de-escalate it. And you always want to look for ways to become a better communicator and a better leader of your wife. That's just uh, husband 101, guys. You know what? Let's do a seventh point. And that is surround yourself with older couples to the best of your ability. If you're in your 20s, find people that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and ideally 60s and even 70s. Folks that have seen a lot, that have been married for years, that have had lots of ups and downs. Those are the people you want to learn from, people that actually know what they're talking about. You'll have a lot of people online that are offering advice, but they don't have much practical experience. We'll have people call us and ask how to raise teenage daughters. Well, my oldest girl is eight years old. I don't know. You know, we can give you some principles, but you really just want to surround yourself with people that have some years, that have some mileage, that have seen a lot. Yeah, especially if you're the kind of guy who has been red-pilled and maybe has come to Christ after being red pilled, or maybe he was just a kind of blue pill Christian. And now you've, you've been red pilled. And a lot of the red pill stuff is very negative on marriage and the, the chances of having a good marriage. Now, one of the reasons that Michael and I are so positive on marriage 
is because not only do we ourselves have good marriages, but we also know a lot of other Christians who also have good marriages and have had good marriages for a very long time. So we know that not only is it possible, but as Christians, it's actually, at least in our circles, it's quite likely. Whereas divorce is unlikely, but we were basically, we believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. We actually do believe that the Holy Spirit changes people and marriages. And if you don't have direct experience of that, it can be really hard to believe because you've got all this rhetoric online. You've got all the statistics saying marriages are more likely to fail than succeed. Um, you've got all your knowledge of both male and female psychology, often, often very <laughs> tilted in one direction. And you can think this is hopeless. What's the point of even getting married? Um, and if you have somehow managed to find a good woman and now you've married her and you're still getting a lot of that stuff online, you you can easily be put into a mindset where you're just kind of expecting to fail. Whereas if you have good Christian couples in your life, especially ones who've been married for much longer than you, you are much more likely to be in a mindset where you're expecting to succeed. hundred percent. Well, the proof's in the pudding. So I would tell anyone that's listening to this, just to try to apply a couple of these principles over the next several months and see what happens. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. 